You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with David Blight. This program originally aired in 2019. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you all for coming. I can see most of you. Uh, I don't normally have musical warm-up. Uh, it's dreadnought, right? God bless you. I wonder if Douglas had musical warm-up here. I can almost feel his presence. He spoke in thousands of halls, thousands of churches. Uh, all over New England. Uh, in fact, if there was a town the train went to or a town where you could reach it from five miles away by train and then take a carriage, he spoke there. Trust me, he spoke there. Uh, he may have been the most uh, traveled American of the 19th century. I speculate about that in the book. Um, at one point I tried to uh, come up with some estimate of the total miles he traveled. I gave up after a while. He would only have one competitor on that count, um, probably Mark Twain. But Twain sort of cheated, he went to Asia. Uh, but I am fairly confident that, and this hall makes me think of that, um, he probably spoke to more Americans or more people, including now the British Isles and the continent of Europe, than any American of the 19th century. More people heard Frederick Douglass speak than probably anyone else. I'm not sure who else you could even compare him to. Now, I just want to take, a, I was asked to take maybe 10 minutes or 15 and say something about this book, uh, how it came about. And then I'm going to sit down with Peter and we're going to dig in deeper and eventually to your questions. I saw the stack of note cards back there. So you were, you're aiming for me, I can tell. Uh, it's a great honor to be able to speak here in this uh, lecture series in such a gorgeous hall. I was out here earlier just taking pictures of this place. Um, but I had the blind good luck that historians don't normally have. Not just because I won a bunch of book prizes. That's blind good luck, too. And believe me, I've been on a lot of book prize juries. <laughs> they got to give it to somebody. <laughs> and sometimes you just get worn out and you say, ah, let's pick something. <laughs> I don't know. But about 12 years ago, I went to Savannah, Georgia, of all places, you might think to give a lecture on Frederick Douglass's narrative, his first autobiography, to middle and high school teachers, which I've done many, many times. I love doing that. And I arrived there, and my host was the Georgia Historical Society and its uh, chief historian, Stan Deaton. And Stan said something like, there's a local gentleman here in town who's a collector, and he'd like to have lunch with you. And I apparently said something like, I guess so. But that day, making a long story short, at lunch I met the most extraordinary man. His name is Walter Evans. 
and he is a collector extraordinaire of African-American rare books, manuscripts, and art. And Walter is uh, an African-American, retired surgeon, who grew up in segregated Savannah, came north for his higher education, went to Howard University in DC as an undergrad, and then to the University of Michigan Medical School, and then he practiced as a general surgeon for close to 35 years in Detroit, which gave us a lot in common to begin with. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, just up the road. But that day, Walter took me over to his house, which is a big, beautiful brownstone on Jones Street in Savannah. If any of you have ever been to Savannah, it's just two blocks off Forsyth Park. And he got out on his dining room table portions of his Douglas collection, which he started purchasing. He actually purchased most of it from one other collector uh, back in the late 1980s. But he got out that day uh, uh, parts of it and showed it to me. His collection consists of many things, but especially family documents, lots of letters, but at the core of that collection are nine very large, thick family scrapbooks that were kept by Douglas, particularly two of Douglas's three sons over the last third, actually about the last 35 years of their father's life. I was not the first to ever see this collection, but I was the first historian to ever use it. That collection is the reason I wrote this book. I had no intention of doing a full life of Douglas. I had Douglas out of my life. I had done my first book on Douglas. It was my dissertation in graduate school. I'd edited his autobiographies. I'd written essays on Douglas. Uh, Douglas was some piece of every other book I've ever written. So Douglas was gone. I had no intention until I encountered that collection. And it was not a, you know, a, I got not a moment of getting struck by lightning on the road to Damascus or anything. I, at, the, at first, I said, no, 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 I don't want to do this. This is too hard. Uh, this is a big epic life. I don't want to write a full life of Douglas. And I kept telling my agent that, and she kept saying, you're going to write it. No, I'm not. You're going to write it. No, I'm not. It took six months or more. And finally I said, okay, I'm going to write it. But, and, and I think I essentially told myself, if I don't do this, somebody else will. <laughs> so, you know, never underestimate the power of competition. <laughs> Here's what's important about that collection, though. I, want, I really want to convey this. It opens up the last third of this man's life as never before. If Americans know anything about Frederick Douglass, they tend to know the young Douglass, because they may have grown up reading the narrative. It's taught widely in schools now. They may have seen Douglass quoted here or there. They may know something about Frederick Douglass as an abolitionist, you know, who traveled everywhere and lectured, and he was a great orator and all that. If they know him at all, they know the young Douglass the one who escaped slavery and reinvented his life and had this amazing skill and power as a speaker. But that older Douglas, the Douglas after the Civil War, is gonna live 30 more years. He lives all the way to 1895. Well, it's just an aging man, falling out of touch, 
What's interesting about some guy who grows old as a symbol? <laughs> Turns out growing old is interesting. Come on. Come on. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, look at me. Uh, anyway, but seriously, Douglas is one of those rare, rare radical reformers who actually lives to see his cause win in the middle of his life. He's in his 40s at the time of the Civil War. What abolitionists really had the right to believe they would see the end of slavery in their lifetime, say, if it was 1850 or 55, or even 1860. But he does. His cause wins in the middle of life. But he's going to live 30 more years to reap the consequences of that triumph. The victory in the Civil War, the emancipation of four million slaves, the reinvention of the American Republic in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the rise and then fall of Reconstruction, the betrayal of Reconstruction, the early years of the development of the Jim Crow system, and he lives all the way to the early years, some of the very worst years of the lynching crisis of the 1890s. What happens to an old radical outsider who wins in the middle of life and then lives 30 more years to see it all kind of rise and fall. What happens to the old radical outsider when he becomes a political insider? What kinds of deals might he have to make with his own soul? What happens to the great symbolic older leader when he's now got another generation, a second generation of young leaders who all want to knock him off? And boy, do they try. And that next generation of young black male leaders are all, unlike Douglas, not slave-born, they're free-born, they're very well-educated, college-educated, professionals. And here's this old former slave who everybody says is the greatest thing ever. They do what all generations do. They wanted to supersede him, take his place, knock him off his pedestal. And Douglas liked being on his pedestal. That's interesting. What happens to this, this aging man who becomes uh, the patriarch of a huge extended family? Four surviving adult children, three sons and a daughter, 21 grandchildren, about three fictive siblings in his life at one point or another who adopted him or he adopted them, and always a variety of other hangers-on around Douglas because he was Douglas, and, be, and, and later in life because they thought he had a lot of money. That's interesting. That aging Douglas, the patriarch of that extended family, and it was by and large at times a dysfunctional extended family. They had all kinds of troubles. They had marriages that were in trouble. He had a son-in-law sue him very publicly. That's not happy. He woke up every day by 1880 and the in Washington, D.C., wondering, what are they writing today in the Washington Press about my family? And in the book, I, I call them this extent. They all moved to Washington, D.C. Children are all adults. Grandchildren are blooming everywhere. I call them the black first family because in the Washington Press, that's what they became. Everything they did, good, bad, and ugly, 
bankruptcies, jobs gained and jobs lost, everything got into the press. That's interesting. The Evans Collection opened all of that up. Because in those scrapbooks, there were thousands, thousands of newspaper clippings that those sons clipped. And then the family, in the 1880s, early 80s, hired a clipping service, which I didn't even know existed. It was called the American Bureau. So everywhere the old man goes, lecturing all across the North, year in, year out, a, a newspaper clipping came back from everywhere. If he speaks in Racine, Wisconsin, there's a newspaper clipping. And for a biographer, you love this kind of stuff. It gives you texture, it gives you anecdotes. It gives you local stuff that you can build the story from. He did interviews sometimes with these local papers, like the one he did in Iowa City. I loved this clipping. It was done by, I don't know why I remember this, but it was done by a Milwaukee newspaper reporter. And reporters would just follow him around. Anyway, Douglas is sitting lonely and tired and exhausted in the Iowa City train station one day in the winter uh, in the late 1870s, and the reporter comes up to him and says, may I speak to you, Mr. Douglas? Yeah, okay. Uh, Mr. Douglas, you didn't seem to have it last night. Didn't seem to be your old self. Well, part of the reason was he was trying out that winter a, a speech where he, he thought he had to be a historian now. He got tired of telling the same damn stories over and over, so he tried to declare his chops as a, his, as a historian of Europe. Oh, God. He worked really hard on this speech. It's 25 pages long in the text. It's about <clears throat> the Dutch monarch who was known as William the Silent. He tried it, he took it all over the country. Turns out nobody cared about William Silent. They didn't want to hear him showing off his chops about the importance of the Dutch Empire and how the Dutch managed to build a republic out of monarchy. Yeah. Anyway, he, he just didn't have it going on that speech. But then his answer to that reporter was, well, you know, I can't, I can't just, just you know, preach it out anymore because I got false teeth and my teeth fall out. But that was, that was only the small part of that anecdote because in that article also it said, the reporter then asked him, it's funny how the reporter would even put this down, but he asked him, so Mr. Douglas, what's the hardest part of being out here on the road like this and traveling all these miles to do this? And, he, and Douglas answered and said, having to talk to people like you. <laughs> I thought, yes, I get it. Anyway. Little pieces of texture like that. I had thousands of these from those Evans scrapbooks. And if you pick the book up tonight, or you already have, you'll notice that the book is dedicated to Walter and Linda Evans. They became my patrons in a way. I spent about six Yale spring breaks in Savannah, which is really tough duty in the middle of March because it's azalea season and you have to sit in an archive all day. My archive was the Evans's dining room table. It doesn't get any better than that. They had only two rules for me. One was, don't come before 8 a.m. I didn't, that was easy. 
I always stayed in a B&B up the street, although eventually I went to the cheapest hotel I could find kind of out on the strip. The other rule, though, was never put your coffee cup on the table with the documents. Fine. I had a table in the corner for my coffee. But that collection made possible writing this new biography with all kinds of new insights, new documents, new stories, and to some extent, a new Douglas. I'll just wrap up here quickly because I want to get to the cushioned chair back here with Peter and to the next musical interlude, of course. But we wouldn't be here if it weren't for Douglas's words. The only power a weapon that Frederick Douglass ever really had was language, the power of the word. It, it, it is quite a story how he came by language, I'm not going to tell all that now, how he came by learning his literacy as a child, a slave child in Baltimore, how he cultivated that through getting a book called The Columbian Orator, how he embraced oratory through that manual of oratory, how he began to read the Bible very young and then read it over and over and over out loud with an old black preacher in Baltimore named Charles Lawson. He came to love language. He was a kid like all kids. He's doing this while still a slave, but he was a kid like all kids. They're all looking. We were all looking for something that we were good at. You know, if we were lucky, we had teachers that cultivated it or coaches that cultivated it or mus musicians that cultivated something in us. What he was good at was language. How he could hear the music of words in his head is partly mystery and partly a story of development that we can discern. He will eventually write 1,200 pages of autobiography his autobiographies are some of the greatest in the history of that genre in America. He will write thousands of speeches. And by the way, every major speech of Douglass's, and I could name a dozen of them right now, they're all in text form. They exist in a text. He wrote them down. He didn't just walk into the music hall and blow out the lights or the lamps as they were in the 19th century with you know oratory off the top of his head he had a written text he'd break from it a lot but they're all there he was a writer he wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the short form political editorials in the 16 years that he edited his newspaper he even wrote one novella in 1852 called the heroic slave this man was a writer and like maybe perhaps some of us in this room, Douglas was the kind of person who didn't always know what he thought about something until he could go to his desk and write it down. I've always believed, and, and as, a, as a biographer, I think all biographers do this, I have a long list of questions that I would ask Douglas if I could ever get him in a room, you know, just summon him, just get him in a room, my, 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 my ideal would be a seminar room for four or five hours at least, no bathroom breaks, locks on the doors, he's sitting there and under an interrogation light 
And maybe I got two or three other Douglas scholars with me so we can gang up on him and we're going to have at it. I got a lot to ask him about his two marriages and his children and what did he really think of Lincoln and what did he really think of Garrison and a whole lot of other things. But, but when I get to ask him that, that kind of cliche question, Mr. Douglas, what are you most proud of? Yeah, you know, he'd probably say, oh, and my children, yeah, my two sons in the Union Army, yeah, sure. I don't believe it for a minute. The thing he was most proud of was that he was a writer. It gave him immortality. Words. Um, we're here because of his words. Uh, thank you, and I look forward to this conversation with Peter and to Dreadnought. Thank you. Well, David Blight, it's so great to have you here for Writers on a New England Stage. Thank you very much for coming all the way from Connecticut today. Hey, thank you again. For a moment that the lights came up, I could see you all. Now you're gone again. So you as a historian, this wasn't your first encounter with Frederick Douglass. You've written other things about him. You could have chosen any number of historical figures mm. to dedicate years and years of research to. What made you decide Frederick Douglass was the person you were going to research. Uh, I, just, I wish I could remember that moment somehow. Um, he, he sort of chose me, I think. Not, not that he was looking for anybody. but um, I took the first ever black history course taught at Michigan State as an undergraduate. That's where I was an undergrad. Go Sparty. Um, in either 1968 or 69, it was taught by a man named Les Rout, who was African-American. His field, though, was Brazilian history. I suspect they just came to Les and said, Les, you're black. Teach this course. We need it. Uh, and he did, and, and it was enthralling. I didn't learn anything about Douglas in high school that I'm aware of. But then I was a high school teacher for seven years in my hometown of Flint. And in those years in the 70s, we were creating courses out of whole cloth on black history, about race. That's where I first began at least to get interested in Douglas. Um, and I actually still have a poster. You know how for teachers, I don't know if it was a scholastic or whoever it was would produce these classroom posters. And I have this, po it's a photograph of Douglas, it's a huge poster. And I still have it up, that same poster. It's in my apartment now. And what I love about it most is it has his wrong birth date. It has a middle initial of E. He had no middle initial. I don't know who <laughs> created this thing, but it has errors on it. You know, it's like having a great baseball card with errors. You know? And then when I went to graduate school, I wanted to work on uh, abolitionists. I wanted to work on the coming of the Civil War. I wanted to work on black abolitionists in particular, because they hadn't been studied very much. And that quickly landed me on Douglas, in part 
because of what I just said. He left by far the most material to work with um, in, in his writings, although back then uh, what we had to work with is nothing close to what we have now. But uh, that inspiration came then in graduate school. I wrote my dissertation and first book on Douglas. But I do think the thing that always has attracted me to Douglas is the language, uh, is the power of his words, his ability to hear in his head sometimes a metaphor, uh, an idea, an explanation of something in history or a, you know, a tragedy or a triumph, uh, or his ability to simply explain what slavery meant, both physically and mentally and emotionally. Um, that, Douglas is one of those writers, and I suspect this is why he has sustained my interest. He is one of those writers you can read forever and always see something new. Like reading Shakespeare, or like reading Emerson, or you know, many of the great novelists. Uh, you can read them over and over and over and you always see new things. Well, how did he learn to read and write in the first place? Because he was born a slave, yeah. and slaves were not generally allowed to learn how to read and write? No, the great good luck of Douglas's slave life is, is that of the 20 years he spends in slavery in Maryland, he spends 11 of those years out on the eastern shore, the kind of backwater of, of Maryland, but he spends nine years in Baltimore, back and forth, twice. Um, and in Baltimore, he learned his alphabet and how to read from his white mistress, her name was Sophia Auld, and for almost two years she taught him, when, she, when he was only seven and eight years old, she taught him to read. Uh, and she did it very fondly, lovingly, according to Douglas, uh, until her husband came in one day and said, you will not teach that slave any further, uh, and in no uncertain terms. In fact, Douglas remembered Hewald, uh, her husband, saying, if you teach an N-word to read, the next thing they're going to want to do is write. <laughs> and Douglas said, that was the first abolitionist speech I ever heard. Because <laughs> if Hewald didn't want me to read and write, uh, that must be the thing I probably should do. You know? uh, so then, then he cultivates that fascination with language by collecting everything he can find. Meaning like scraps of paper. Scraps of paper, scraps of newspapers. Mm -hmm. And he tells us even odd pages of the Bible he found in the streets in Baltimore. Somebody had torn up their Bible. Now, it could be just a metaphor he's using because this is a very clever, creative writer at times. On the other hand, I, there's a part of me that doesn't doubt it either. Uh, but that Columbian Order, that book he discovers among his white playmates, it was a school reader. Uh, and then he gets, he gets exposed to preaching in four different churches in the city of Baltimore. Two white churches, two black churches. He learns a lot, not just about you know, biblical storytelling and you know the creeds, so to speak, but he learns a lot about language and how to use it um, uh, before he ever escapes from slavery. He had oratorical chops that he had even tried out a lot before he ever escapes at age 20. But it was that, he, he wasn't a writer yet. That's gonna come a little, late, a little bit later, but even that he takes to quite quickly. 
But it was Baltimore that made possible Douglas's escape, Douglas's learning, Douglas's beginning to see this larger maritime world. Uh, in fact, had he not spent those nine years in Baltimore, we wouldn't even know about him. And the key about that is that Baltimore at this time was one of the great American port cities. Uh, great, like Portsmouth here, it was a great shipbuilding city. And it had a huge free black population. In fact, the year he escaped, 1838, Baltimore had about 3,000 slaves, but it had 17,000 free blacks. So he's part of that community. And overwhelmingly, the black population was free. That's where he meets Anna Murray, his soon-to-be wife. Uh, and he, he got involved in a debating society uh, among the free blacks of Baltimore. So by the time he escapes at 20, uh, he's not only got a certain native intelligence, which some people do have, but he has practiced oratory. He's been reading. Uh, he's been influenced by, um, by preachers. And when he escapes, he's not only looking for a job so he can feed his family, but one of the first things he does in New Bedford, Massachusetts, when he and Anna move there, is he joins that little black church, uh, an AME church in New Bedford, and within the first year he's there, by the time he's 21 years old, they have him up in the pulpit preaching. Mm. And that's where he began to sort of learn and perfect his homiletics. He learned to preach to the text. And he gets discovered there by uh, some Boston abolitionists. Uh, he's 22 years old, that's all. Uh, and they invite him out to Nantucket, and then they invite him out all over New England, including right through here in apparently 1844, or maybe 43. I should have looked that up. <laughs> um, uh, but he's an orator first. Uh, his, his use of language first is sermonic. It's oratorical. The writer comes about four years later. And at what point did he really start to forge his own identity as an abolitionist mm -hmm. in the same way that William Lloyd Garrison was an yeah. abolitionist? Well, there's no day or even week or month that happened. He's probably already uh, an abolitionist of a kind, even when he's preaching in the little Zion church in, uh, in New Bedford. But he's reading The Liberator. Garrison's famous newspaper. In fact, D Douglas tells us the story that one of his jobs, he worked all kinds of manual jobs those first three years in New Bedford. One of his jobs was working in a foundry, and he worked the bellows in the foundry with one arm up and down, up and down. But on, on the wall on the side of him, he would tack up every week Garrison's Liberator, and he would read the Liberator. It was like manna from heaven. These radical abolitionists talking about how to destroy slavery. He, he could hardly believe what he was reading. But imagine him he's pumping that bellows to make his 25 cents a day or whatever he got and then reading the Liberator on the wall. And he probably would untack it at night and take it home. Um, he learns his abolitionism from reading the Liberator and then eventually observing the Garrisonian abolitionist who hire him after his visit to Nantucket with Garrison and their uh, band of abolitionists. And when he goes out on the road, 
as an itinerant orator, he goes almost always in those first few years, 
and it was the last one they would ever do in uh, 1849. But then it also, they broke apart, and some of you have read about this, uh, over a scandal uh, because an English woman named Julia Griffiths, or a scandal so claimed by the Garrisonians, an English woman named Julia Griffiths, whom he met in England, and they became very good friends, very close friends. She came over to America, I'm making a long story short. Uh, she came to Rochester, she moved into the Douglas House, she stayed for six years. She was the assistant editor on his newspaper, his principal fundraiser, and his very personal confidant, and also his personal editor. She helped make him a writer. But the Garrisonians, who were resenting Douglas by 1851, 52, he'd become independent, he'd gone on his own, created his own newspaper, he was not supposed to do that, uh, blew this up into a scandal and said Douglas was having an affair with this white English woman in his own house. Douglas denied it, Julia denied it, Douglas's wife denied it. My best guess is that they were never sexually involved but they were very close friends. Uh, we do not know for sure on that one, and believe me, a bunch of scholars have tried to figure it out. Um, there will be another relationship with a European woman named Otilia Ossing. We can get to her later if you want, and that will last for 22 years. But it was the Julius situation that the Garrisonians exploited, and then from that day forward, Douglas and Garrison never were friends again. In fact, they never really made up. Since you mentioned the newspaper, it might be a good time to bring in an audience question about mm -hmm. Douglas's uh, ventures into his, his newspaper. Um, and the question is, why was Douglas successful in getting audiences for his speeches, mm -hmm. but not subscribers to his newspaper? Oh, I love that question. That's, that's great, yeah. He had such a hard time yeah. keeping his newspapers Hundreds of people afloat. would come out to hear Douglas speak, but that newspaper barely survived. In fact, without Julia Griffith's fundraising, it wouldn't have survived. Uh, well, first of all, he's trying to cultivate a black readership all across the country. Uh, he's trying to make this a black-owned, black-run, black-edited newspaper. He's very proud of that. The race needed its own abolitionist newspaper, he said. There'd been a couple others before, but they'd never lasted. Black folk didn't have the money, even though it only took $3 a year. Every, every issue of the North Star and then Douglas's paper, he changes the name of it, it would always have at the rear on the last page the list of people who hadn't paid up their subscriptions. <laughs> yeah. Like he'd whack them, you know, he'd have 20 in one and there'd be like 50 of them in the next issue. Uh, it, was, it was very hard to keep people paying up, so to speak. Um, but that newspaper became for him uh, his reason to be, he says it many times, that he had, and it was a weekly for years. He doesn't, it was a weekly for approximately uh, 11 years. He starts in 1847, it's a weekly all the way to 1859, I believe. And then he turned it into a monthly until it ended in 1863. That paper was his outlet. He said, this was my way of having my say. And it gave him uh, uh, some political chops 
because by the late 40s and early 1850s with the great political crises over slavery, Mexican War, Compromise of 1850, Fugitive Slave Act, Kansas, Nebraska, all the rest of that, he hones his ability to do political anal analysis. He becomes a political anal analyst. And uh, that paper was something he could go to every week and feel the energy of his pen and have his say. Now, it only had at times from four to 700 subscribers. Sometimes he got to 1,000, it appears. But the paper also became the family business. And as his kids got old enough into their teenage years, he taught them all printing. They became basically printer's apprentice. They set type. And the kids remember later when they wrote little memoirs about their parents, they remember that every week they would often take Friday off school to put out the paper. They would, they, Douglas had to have those editorials done and assemble all these pieces from other newspapers by Wednesday and Thursday. They printed that thing on Friday and the boys took the piles of the papers down to the uh, post office and sent them out. So it was, it was like the family affair, family business. It didn't make him a real living, however. And that needs to be said. Uh, in those years, the finances were extraordinarily lean. He's got five children by 1849. And little Annie, uh, his fifth child, his wife's namesake, um, uh, is on, on board by 1849. She's only going to live to be 11. Uh, but he's got a huge family to feed, and the only way Douglas made any kind of a living in those years, in fact, from 1847, when he goes on his own out to Rochester, all the way to the end of Reconstruction in 1877, he never made a dime any other way than with his voice and his pen. I always tell my students that being an abolitionist was not a good career move. Yeah. There were no pensions, no salaries, uh, no promotions. <laughs> and this was, these were in the years leading up to the Civil War where he was, he was on board with the idea that you can in fact bring about change politically and he was on board with the fact that yeah. this may require violence. Exactly. And, and at some point he was, he was for the war. Before it began he's like we need a war to bring yeah. an end to this. So like, to what extent do you think that he and other abolitionists who thought like him were r really responsible for fanning the flames for the start of the war? Uh, he tried to fan those flames every chance he got. It, it, you, you, you should never misunderstand this. As Peter just said, when the Civil War, when secession and the Civil War finally broke out, Douglas welcomed it. And he became overnight, I have a whole chapter on this, he became overnight one of the most virulent war propagandists you will ever read. He even invented all kinds of tales about southern slaveholders and why they should be killed. Worth mentioning that he, his sons enlisted too. His sons fought the battle. He Two had... of his sons enlisted in the army and a third, well, when they finally could after the Emancipation yeah. Proclamation. And one of them uh, enlisted as a recruiter and went to Mississippi to recruit troops. All three, actually, the entire Douglas family went to war in, in a real sense. His daughter, Rosetta, who was the oldest, married a black Civil War soldier, a former fugitive slave. It, actually, it was a bad marriage. 
She had seven babies in 13 years, and he was a ne'er-do-well, as my mother would have said. Um, but he welcomed the war. Uh, it was what he had always wished for in some ways, a sanctioned, sanctioned official war of some kind on the South on slaveholders and therefore on slavery itself. Now, that does not mean that Douglas predicted all this or you know, had it all figured out by any means, but to your earlier point, it is very important to understand he not only comes to embrace politics, oh, does he ever, although that's a very complex story because he could never quite figure out down to 1860 how to shoulder up to this new Republican Party, whether to trust it. But he also begins to embrace the possible uses of violence. Although, don't misunderstand that. Douglas never had some great plan or theory about how to foment slave insurrections by any means. It's the reason he was so intrigued by John Brown, but in the end did not join John Brown. Had he, had he indeed joined John Brown at Harper's Ferry and Brown did everything in his power to convince Douglas to join him, we probably wouldn't be here talking about him because he'd have been hanged. So what about his relationship with Lincoln? He had a chance to speak with mm -hmm. him a few times mm -hmm. and he really pressured President Lincoln to make this war mean something. Yeah. And, and it turns out it did eventually, but it wasn't like that at first. Douglas and Abraham Lincoln start out at very different places. Uh, to put it simply, and in the first year to a year and a half of the Civil War, throughout 1861 into 62, uh, Douglas may have been the fiercest abolitionist critic Douglas had, uh, that Lincoln had, excuse me. He hated the federal government's policy about returning fugitive slaves to so-called loyal owners. At one point he called Lincoln the most powerful slave catcher in the land. He called Lincoln at one point an itinerant colonizationist orator because of the, the idea and, the, and indeed the efforts by the Lincoln administration at least till the end of 1862 to try to remove blacks from the country if liberated, colonizing them to Africa or to the Caribbean or somewhere. Um, Douglass's tune about Lincoln turned finally uh, with the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September 62 and then particularly with the final proclamation, uh, January 1 of 1863. But that's a very up and down roller coaster, difficult process in those first two years of the war. And there is nothing inevitable about their meetings and their final coming together. They will meet three times, first in August of 63, second in August of 64, a most remarkable meeting, because that time it was at Lincoln's invitation. The first time, Douglas just went to Washington and got in the line and said, I want to talk to the president, because he was there to, this was in 63, he was there to protest all the discriminations against black soldiers, including his own sons. In fact, at the very time he visits Lincoln the first time in August of 63, his son Louis was convalescing in a kind of quasi-hospital in New York City and nearly died of his wounds at Fort Wagner. Uh, 
The fourth, the third time they're going to meet is actually Inauguration Day in the spring of 1865, which is also an extraordinary story. So they only have three meetings. And Douglas probably had concentrated on Lincoln far more than Lincoln had ever concentrated on Douglas, although we, we do have evidence that Lincoln had read some of Douglas. There would have been a fourth meeting because Lincoln actually sent Douglas, after the second inaugural, uh, a week later, I think, Lincoln sends Douglas an invitation to come for tea at the soldier's home, which was the retreat. It was up on higher ground in Washington, D.C., about a 20-minute carriage ride from the White House. And he invited Douglas to just come for afternoon tea, which would have been a longer meeting, much more personal, would that it had happened, but of course the assassination came. And, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Douglas actually turned that down uh, because he had a speaking engagement. And then with the assassination, Douglas, you know, says in print, oh God, I wish I had gone. Um, so there were only those three encounters, almost a fourth. But here's the important thing. They started out at very different opposite ends on emancipation. By the end of the war, they were almost speaking from the same script. There are lots of reasons for that. And for the rest of Douglas's life, the 30 more years after 1865, he will invent or create about three different kinds of Abraham Lincolns in many, many different speeches. He created a Lincoln for what he needed him for at a given time, which is still what most people do with Lincoln. <laughs> um, Lincoln was a little bit like John Brown, uh, extraordinarily useful as a martyr, and Douglas made the most of it. And after Lincoln's death, also slavery officially over, uh, Frederick Douglass's focus had to shift a little bit. I mean, he'd spent his whole adult life basically railing against slavery, which is no longer a recognized institution. He had to fight for voting rights and equal protection under the law. Yeah. And he was also fond of saying um, that, that African-Americans and freed slaves need to be left alone by the government and they need to be self-reliant. Um, I mean... Talk about you know creating Lincolns. People create Douglases, and one of them is the one that says yeah. black people have to be self-reliant. But right. that that might be an oversimplification. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. No, he said it hundreds of times. Peter's really read this book. This I did read amazing. this book. He's carefully read this. <laughs> it's a good Ooh. book. You should. I read can't it. tell you how how much fun it is to be interviewed about this book when the person's really read it. I mean, it's a little scary. He knows it better than I do right now. No, seriously, you're right. Uh, Douglas became uh, a powerful advocate of self-reliance, uh, urging black folk to stay in the South, for example. He opposed the Kansas exodus of 1879. He was always preaching, you know, build yourselves up, kind of a bootstraps ideology, if you like. Um, but all black leaders did that in the 19th century. What else could they do? especially before emancipation, but even after emancipation, 
even, even after emancipation, at least during the early Reconstruction years, when you can actually truly believe this government is now establishing the end of slavery, uh, equality before law in the 14th Amendment, the right to vote in the 15th Amendment, at least for black men, uh, and passing civil rights laws, two of them during Reconstruction. There's something to truly believe in here. And Douglas made the most of that. But he always preached self-reliance. But what you just indicated is, is dead right. Douglas, being such a symbolic figure and having left so many words to work with, has become a darling in our own time of the American political right. He's Clarence Thomas's principal hero. Justice Thomas has a portrait of Douglas right behind his desk in his chambers at the Supreme Court. Uh, the Cato Institute put out a book uh, a year and a half ago called uh, 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 Self-Made Man, which is the title of one of Douglas's famous speeches. The author of that book, who's a strict libertarian, argues that Douglas is therefore a great conservative, a believer in limited government, a believer in self-reliance, that you don't need a welfare state, you don't need government. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I wrote a column in the New York Times attacking that book, and uh, its author never, never responded. I, I, I thought he'd go for blood, but uh, I'm sure I didn't convince him. But what people do with Douglas is the same thing we do with so many other figures. We cherry pick. And you can find all, you, in fact, the quote you just used is true. Douglas, uh, around the end of Reconstruction, and even during early Reconstruction, but especially around the end of Reconstruction, in the late 1870s, he says, you know, everyone's always asking what, what should be done with the Negro? What should be done to the Negro? What does the Negro want? Using the word Negro in the 19th century. And he said, you know, the best thing you could do is do nothing with him. Leave him alone. Give him fair play, he would always say. Protect his rights. Protect his and her safety. And then let him alone. Let him have education and let him alone. Let him have land and let him alone. He didn't mean just cast them off in some social Darwinistic world to root hog and die on their own. He never meant that. But if you pluck the quote out, sufficiently out of its context, you can make Douglas say a lot of things. Um, well, I'll, I'll paraphrase an audience question here along those lines. Um, is there anything in your research that suggests he would have an opinion one way or the other on reparations as we understand them now? <laughs> yes. Um, there were efforts at reparations in the 19th century. There was a whole campaign to raise a fund for former slaves. He was not directly involved in that, but Douglas believed in every conceivable way that the federal government, the United States, had freed his people in war. Emancipation comes out of four years of war. Four million people, slaves yesterday, are something called free people today. Well, then there was the struggle for rights, equality before law, the right to vote. Doug, for Douglas, the right to vote was always the highest of all rights to him. He may have overdone that. He was a classical kind of political liberal in that sense. Um, but 
Douglass's vision of repair was that the federal government, the United States, meaning its people, would make good in what they had just done. The Civil War was a revolution. I mean, it ends an entire system of slavery, an entire system of labor. It sends people into the, into the future on their own. They need education. They need everything. They need human capital. He actually favored land redistribution. He, he came out very publicly for Thaddeus Stevens's plan of land redistribution in the South, that, that the federal government would take land and give it to black people. He favored that. Now, you know, reparation can mean anything at any time. To him, it meant the United States keeping its promise. He, it didn't mean setting up a fund that would give X number of dollars to X number of people. I don't know him ever quite saying that. He also believed, and this, this goes to the reparation question as well, he also very much believed in home rule for Washington, D.C. I mean, he lived there from 1872 on, the last 26 years of his life. Uh, sorry, 23 years of his life. Uh, and as we all know, the District of Columbia still doesn't have the basic rights of a state. They don't have real representation. They're taxed. They're not represented. Where did we hear that before? Um, he, he absolutely was in favor of home rule for the district. Uh, he saw, and, and in part because the black population of Washington, D.C. boomed in the wake of the war. There were only a handful of black people in Washington, D.C. and they were um, in 1861, um, about 3,000, I believe. By the end of the war, 40,000. It emigrated out of slavery, out of Maryland, Virginia, and so on into Washington. There's a huge and growing black population. Why not make it a state? He was arguing that in the 1880s. We're still arguing it. Imagine that, what that would do to the US Senate. Mm. <laughs> so as you mentioned, he spent the last couple of decades of his life in Washington, DC. He was finally kind of an insider in a way. I mean, he spent his whole life sort of railing at the government to from degree, the outside. He was, yeah. And then he had a, a presidential appointment to, it was the Register of Deeds? Yeah, and, and, and Marshal of the Haiti. District of Columbia and then U.S. Minister to Haiti. He had three major appointments in the federal government. Did that have any influence in your view on, on how he went about advocating for the things he had been advocating for his whole life? It did, and not always to the positive. Uh, when one... When you spend the first half of your life as a political outsider, as I said, and now you, be, you, know, you sort of get your toes inside power. Not elective power, but inside the Republican Party. His first federal appointment was actually as part of the commission to Santo Domingo from President Grant in 1871. And he went on the tour for three months with the commission that looked into the possible annexation of Santo Domingo, which is today the Dominican Republic, which he favored at that point. Uh, second appointment comes from Harrison in 1877 as Marshal of the District of Columbia. That job was like being the Sheriff of the District of Columbia. And then he was appointed by Garfield as the Recorder of Deeds, which meant he was the real estate czar of the District of Columbia. He signed all the deeds. Doesn't sound like a very sexy job, but it had a real salary. Actually, a pretty nice salary. 
and he was allowed eight clerks. And by the way, who does he appoint? The first four clerks were his three sons and his daughter. Uh, and he gets charged all over the Washington press of nepotism, nepotism, nepotism. He, finally, he just you know, did an interview and said, okay, right, my kids need jobs, sorry, end of story. Now today you couldn't get away with hiring your own kids in the federal bureaucracy. Never happens. You, uh, you're Never following happens. the news, yeah. <laughs> Good. But he got away with it. <laughs> Uh, but but then, then he's appointed by Harrison, the second Harrison president, as the U.S. ambassador to Haiti in 1889. And that became a very complicated experience because he was sent there essentially. And by the way, it wasn't the first African-American minister to Haiti. There had been two before him. Uh, it had become sort of the black job in the Foreign Service Corps. His two years in Haiti as U.S. ambassador, though, were very complicated, very... Uh, uh, violent even. He's there during a horrible coup d'etat, but he was principally there to try to enforce a single policy, which was to get Haiti to give or sell a beautiful bay up on the northern coast of Haiti to the United States so the U.S. could have a coaling station for its merchant marine and its navy. And what Douglas learned in a hurry is that the Haitians weren't giving any of their land to anybody. And he got into a mess because he was trying to enforce a policy he eventually did not believe in. And he had to resign the position. And he, and he had a lot of pressure to resign the position, but he chose to resign on his own timing. But it was a, a learning experience for a, uh, what was he, 71-year-old man. One more question. Sure. Uh, has to do with um, the end of his life and... and looking forward to the next generation and mm. you know he was working with some other up-and-coming abolitionists not abolitionists uh, people who were fighting for equal rights Ida, Ida, Ida Wells right. uh, he had met Booker T Washington um, he also had some rivals uh, folks oh, who yeah. had a different approach how did he want the next generation to continue fighting for equal rights well this is where his own uh, strategic vision you might say had kind of worn out on him he advocated constantly to the bitter end about the right to vote. The trouble was, by the 1890s, black folk were being lynched. Uh, average numbers in the early 1890s between 250 and 300 people per year. There's a lynching happening more than every other day in those last three years of his life. Um, he always advocated for hanging on to the basic American creeds. He always said the Declaration of Independence uh, is something to love and adore. It belongs to everyone, not to any one group. He said the creeds were precious and beautiful. It's the practices that are the problem. Um, he didn't necessarily have a new vision as to how in this new, new and virulently white supremacist America by the 1890s, this was to be achieved. However, by 1893, in fact, it was when he was in Chicago at the Chicago World's Fair that he first crafted it, 
He wrote a speech that became the last great speech of his life. It's called Lessons of the Hour. It is a brilliant analysis of why lynching was happening and what it meant in American history and how it violated everything they had won in the great Civil War. He crafted that speech first in the fall of 1893. He gave it just dozens and dozens of times all over the country at age 76, which is really old in the 19th century, uh, all throughout 1894. He was still giving it up until about two months before he died in um, January of 1895. That speech is, still stands up as an effective analysis of why uh, African Americans were being lynched totally outside of any legal context, totally outside of any kind of proper rule of law, uh, it, it, how, how and why America had become ruled by mob law, as he said. So you could see the old fire come back. The radical came back. And he's advocating mass protest against this. Uh, at a time when he didn't know what else to argue. But I, I should say this, he did not die uh, just a bitter, angry, tragic old soul by any means. This was a man who had all kinds of sources in him. Some of them are discernible and some of them mysterious. He had all kinds of sources of hope in him. And part of that was faith. Part of that was belief in these secular enlightenment creeds, and part of this was belief in his own experience. Um, so he doesn't die, uh, you know, just a lost old man by any means. He goes out fighting. Well, David Blight, thank you very much for speaking with us. You bet. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. The Music Hall's executive producer is Patricia Lynch. New Hampshire Public Radio's president and chief executive officer is Jim Schachter. NHPR's digital and broadcast producer is Sarah Plourd. The Music Hall's production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall's live sound and recording engineer is Ian Martin. Musical director and band is Bob Lord and Dreadnought. The Music, Hall, the music Hall's literary coordinator is Brittany Wasson. David J. Murray of Clear Eye Photo took photos tonight, which will be posted at cleareyephoto.com. Special thanks to Andrea Graham for helping me prepare for this. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for joining us for this edition of Writers on a New England Stage. Thank you.